Hello, well, thank you for inviting me. Good morning. Uh, I'm Ms. Lawrence. I'm immediate past president of UCU. Right, these are the four areas I want to try and talk about in 10 minutes. Academic freedom and academic standards, privatisation metrics and the white paper, and then what's happening to the students and demand for higher education, and what's happening to staff. You'll see how I do. Okay, starting with the first one. I think it's important to talk about how academic freedom and academic standards go together. That you need to have academic freedom to be able to uphold academic standards in terms of rigour of research and so on. We already see the dangers of commercial pressure on the sector. And I think that's one of the important things to say about the white paper, that it's in a context where we've already seen our higher education sector damaged by marketisation and commodification of education. I want to say a bit about the prevent agenda because I think this is one of the things to keep in mind when we look at academic freedom and defending the whole notion of a university. Universities have duties both to safeguard students and to maintain academic freedom. So the question is how well are they doing, particularly on the latter part of that agenda? Because we have a concern that some subjects, for instance in international relations, may become difficult to teach there may be discouragement about doing PhDs on aspects of the Middle East and so on. Um, so they become difficult to teach and research in those areas. Is it wise to have a module about terrorism and counter-terrorism on your politics degree, for instance? Now, I feel that what the Conservative government is doing with the Prevent Agenda is trying to create a rather narrow centre-right consensus. Liberal at the moment on social issues like gay marriage but conservative it is assuming the market is the answer to everything and that we should go along with neoliberal economics and also very much confined by US foreign policy so that certain things become outside the consensus and difficult to talk about. Um, and so we have to ask about these issues and you know how are terms like extremism, terrorism, radicalisation defined? Many of you will no doubt at times have written on student essays define your terms radicalisation or abolitionists in the 19th, 18th, 19th century were, were radicalised by the horrors of slavery and the slave trade. That was a good sort of radicalisation, wasn't it? So we use these sorts of terms in a particular way in the prevent agenda, whereas actually as academics we would generally use such terms much more widely. What is the difference between terrorism and special military operations, for instance, if you're teaching military studies? And we have to look at mudslinging political campaigns, which we've seen um, in recent elections, and these still going on in the USA. Does this threaten academic freedom? Again, does it make certain things difficult to talk about or risky subjects to, to publish and research in? Sorry, Liz, could you speak up a little bit? I Sorry. People might be having right, let me go on to private, privatisation metrics and the white paper. As I said, we've had considerable privatisation already in the sector, outsourcing, change basis of student funding. I think what's critical about the white paper, and there's an alternative one out, is the encouragement of the so-called challenger institutions, which I think always makes us sound a bit like jeeps or tanks. Um, but this notion of the growth of private for-profit providers being a good idea. Well, there have already been a lot of them, but a lot of them haven't stayed in the market long. And this is very much tied in with the rise of metrics. What's quite interesting is, for instance, look at the critique from the OECD of proxy metrics, because the OECD is interested in what students learn, which is, of course, the same thing as whether they're happy or not, which is what the National Student Survey measures. And what's particularly new about the white paper, 
I think it is focused on rapid exit from the sector, that institutions can walk away from responsibilities to staff and students. So you could, in theory, do a degree at a new provider, get your degree, find after three years that the institution loses its degree awarding powers, fails its sort of probation, and you've spent three years of your life and three years of fees and qualification whose value has suddenly rather plummeted. It's hard to say this is being seriously proposed, but it seems to be the picture. But I think the white paper, and I'm glad the first speaker dealt very much with the regulatory framework, so that's a big aspect of it. I think this raises the question of what is a degree? There are certain basic social values that need debating and revisiting here. Because we've seen the rise of the employability discourse. This is the spiel at a lot of open days. A degree is an investment by an individual in their parents, in their employability, which will lead to higher lifetime earnings. That's a very individualistic and very economic view of what a degree is about. So we forget the idea of a degree as a benefit to society. That it may be about creating educated citizenry who can see many sides of a question and see through propaganda easily. Uh, we don't think about the benefits to society. Um, Sheffield Hallam, like many post-92s, has a big faculty of health and well-being. Uh, producing nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, radiographers, social workers, etc. People who will do socially useful jobs, but they're not going to earn as much as people who go into the city. Does that mean, in terms of these measures, that the education and the degrees are worthless? That, that's the danger of this sort of thinking. Um, what about the job society needs doing? I think we must also ask the questions, what's education going to look like in these private for-profit providers? And we can see some of them. Is it, is it slimmed down to simply you get um, an, an education, you get taught materials, perhaps online, you get assessment, but you get nothing else as a student? Is there academic and pastoral support? Are there things like a student union, um, student societies, sporting facilities? accommodation, nurseries, libraries, or social space for students. Um, is it, is, are all those aspects of the broader educational experience simply not there? There's the question of staff contracts and charters. Is there any commitment to academic freedom or is that not there? Um, obviously what happens to equality policies, to commitments to widening participation, to things like um, support services for disabled students? Um, Clearly, there's a question about how pay and conditions are determined in such places. I mean, UCU obviously will aim to, to, to unionise such places, but we'll be having to start from scratch probably in doing so. Um, and the more of those there are, the less they will be keeping track with national pay in terms and conditions of employment. Uh, so there are all these issues about what's education going to look like in these places. Um, let's look at the students. As a sociologist, I sometimes wonder why is demand for higher education not fallen? Uh, fees have gone up, many graduates are not getting graduate jobs. It's actually remarkable that demand has held up as well as it has so far. But um, we're seeing the beginning of UK students studying abroad. Why should not more opt for this option, either if they speak another language or if there is the option of um, being taught in English somewhere on the continent of Europe where you can study the degree more cheaply? Um, universities are very conscious of the loss of overseas students because of the government's ideological obsession with migration and migration controls. 
There are cutbacks going on in the further education sector. That's something to be aware of, what's happening to FE with the area reviews, because many students do access university through the further education route, through retaking A-levels um, or through access courses. If that provision is reduced um, through reorganisation of that sector, that will have implications for higher education. And I think we should also, also pose the question of how many graduates does the Conservative government want? Uh, many decades ago, some Latvi um, officials and senior officers went to see Gillian Shepherd to make the case for expanding um, the polytechnic sector as it was then, and they went with a load of facts and figures and statistics about the benefits. And she just asked, well, but what percentage of the population has got the ability to do a degree? And I'm wondering whether we might see in some quarters the, the resurgence of that sort of traditional elitist thinking that only X percent have got the brains anyway. Then we have to be alert to that possibility. What percentage of the population do you want educated to degree level <coughs> if you're just seeing it as about employment and employability? And if you're facing a situation where um, you've got a lot of graduates who are employed in non-graduate jobs. Right, and then of course there's the question about what's happening to the staff, which you would expect me uh, from UCU to say something about. Um, what type of jobs will be offered by universities in the future? Um, we've obviously got the growth of precarious employment, we've been busy documenting that. Nearly half of the staff you know, in UK universities, a lot of teaching, often several jobs worth in a department done by people on precarious contracts, often zero hours, hourly paid, or other temporary contracts of two or three years. That's often endemic, particularly for research careers, that people have a succession of temporary contracts. But there's also the question about the labour process. Who writes the learning materials? Do you, as an academic, as a lecturer, produce your own lecture notes, decide what seminar questions you're going to discuss with the students? Or do you find yourself in a position where you're simply delivering a learning package organised by someone else? Uh, maybe by a more senior lecturer, who is more like a lecturer manager. Or maybe by Pearson's or some other corporation, whose agenda is very much about profitability and producing online learning materials, um, not necessarily anything to do educational objectives. There's the question of does the lecturer do both research and teaching? But that, that, that scenario of simply delivering learning materials written by someone else raises questions about academic and pedagogic freedom. You may not feel that's what the students want or need, but that's what you've got to deliver. It's very much prescripted. Not particularly different in that sense from working at McDonald's, perhaps, of certain things you're meant to say, uh, or a call centre, you know. Um, does the lecturer do both research and teaching? Or do we have posts and... Um, um, derogatorily called teaching only, although teaching actually involves scholarship, so we don't like the term teaching only, it's a de-skilling term. Um, the Canadian Association of University Teachers uses the phrase academic fracking to describe the development of posts where teaching and research are separated <coughs> on the grounds that we should keep hold of the holistic nature of the academic job involving both research and teaching and perhaps university committee service and so on. Um, so there are these issues about how much academic freedom and autonomy people have. But the last point I want to finish on are the pressures on workloads and all these things. As you know, we're in a trade dispute at the moment, as you see, you overpay. A big part of that dispute are things like the gender pay gap and casualisation. But is university lecturing a long-term career? I'd like to pose that as a question. I spent quite a lot of time at teacher union conferences 
uh, I have done last two years as UCU president and one thing you know rapid turnover in school teaching a feeling that a lot of young people are entering the profession and a few years later deciding this is just too much they've got to do something a bit less stressful a bit less intensive as long working hours and so on now if university lecturing becomes something people do as a new graduate for a few years in precarious employment but then move on to something better that changes very much the nature of the job and the nature of the university. 